Right, welcome once again to Iraq on the eve of elections, a new era or a return to the status quo, uh, the conference run by the London School of Economics Middle East Centre, running today the 28th of September and tomorrow the 29th of September. So I very much hope that you can join us for the whole two days. Uh, this, this workshop celebrates the work of the Conflict Research Programme Iraq, which ran for four years until this summer and published over 30 reports on the drivers of conflict in Iraq. If you haven't come across uh, our work, please, um, I, I uh, would urge you to look at the LSE's Middle East Center website and the Iraq work there, which is, I think, superb. And part of the reason for this conference is to bring people who've contributed to our work to this, to this workshop to discuss where Iraq is at the moment on the eve of elections and what the elections signify, but also what the long-term trends are moving forward. Um, so that each speaker will have seven minutes and they promised me faithfully that they will keep to those seven minutes. So uh, I'm glad that that's the case. Uh, there is Arabic and English interpretation. So if you go on the, in the interpretation channel and pick uh, which, uh, which uh, translation you want. Let me introduce our four speakers, uh, all speaking from, uh, sorry, our, uh, our three speakers, all addressing us today from Baghdad, all leaders in their field. So I think we're very privileged to get uh, such experts to discuss this uh, topic. The first is Marcin Al-Shamari who is a, a Baghdad-based political scientist and non-resident fellow within the Middle East Initiative at the Harvard Kennedy School with the Institute of Regional and International Studies at the American University in Iraq and Salamania as well. She holds an excellent PhD, which I've had the privilege of looking at uh, in political science from the Michigan Institute of Technology no, uh, and um, on the role of um, Shia clerics in anti-government protests. And she will be our first speaker. Our second speaker is an old friend, uh, Sajad Jihad, is a, and he's an Iraq uh, political analyst based in Baghdad. He's also a fellow of the Century Foundation. I think anyone who knows about Iraq will have read his incisive pieces, uh, not least for us at the, uh, uh, confl um, the Conflict Research Programme Iraq. Um, he uh, has an educational background in economics, politics, and Islamic studies, as you'll know if you've read his work. And finally, last but not least, is a uh, Lahib Hagel, who were, who's worked on Iraq and the Kurdish region in various capacities since 2013. Most recently, she's worked on mediation efforts in Iraq, Libya and Syria for the Dialogue Advisory Group. She has worked uh, as a security advisor for International NGO, the International Safety Organization, um, and she's worked for a minority rights group. Uh, and the UNDP and the EU. She holds an MSc in International Relations, which I didn't know from the London School of Economics, excellent, uh, and an MA in International Security from Science Po. So we have uh, three superb speakers that are gonna address the prospects for reforming the political system on the eve of the elections, and we'll go in the order of the program. So Marcin, you have seven minutes. Can you start, please? Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Toby, and thank you, Life, for setting this up for us. I'm going to be starting the conversation today talking about boycotts, which actually the fact that I'm starting with this tells you a lot about the state of elections in Iraq today. 
So briefly, I wanted to discuss what the boycotts that are happening are, who is boycotting, and who has the influence to determine whether people will boycott or not. And to provide a very brief summary of that, um, boycott in Iraq for this elections, you can think of as follow, falling along two planes. The boycotting and saying that they don't want to participate in the elections. And the second is electorate boycott. So voters saying that they don't want to be involved in the elections. Now, what's new is the party boycott, which we hadn't seen before in Iraq's recent history um, and in previous election cycles. And they mainly stem from the fact that we have about nine or so new political parties. Five groups that I've uh, been able to identify that are also parties that have emerged from the protest movement that are actually participating. Um, I just, sorry, I got a message that I can't be heard and we just had a power cut off here. So can, can everyone Marcin, hear me? Marcin, keep going. It is a bit patchy, but keep going. Okay, just to make sure. All right. So to the party boycott that I was speaking of, there are at least five parties that are not boycotting and that are participating in the elections and that they stem from the protest movement. And these parties are running in southern Iraq, but they're also running in areas like Diyala and Salah Din and Kirkuk. And I think this was made possible by the fact that we have new electoral districts. So this is one of the, one of the changes for this election cycle. Now, speaking of the electorate boycott, this means people, regular everyday voters, are boycotting the, the election. And this is something we've seen before. We saw this in 2018. Uh, we saw a boycott movement where people said that they would not participate because they wanted to delegitimize the system uh, through a low voter turnout. And you know, observing these kinds of boycotts and speaking to people and trying to understand uh, how people perceive and how people describe voter boycott, it largely stems from two decisions. There's a group who are ideological boycotters who are boycotting precisely for the reason I described, that they think that if they don't participate, then they are not legitimizing a system that is corrupt. And then the other group that I think people tend to overlook are what I call logistical boycotters, and they're people who from a place of apathy have decided, a uh, place of apathy and a place of, um, of disbelief in the system and lack of trust in the system have decided that it's not worth their effort. So these are people, for example, who, you know, upon turning 18 have decided that they don't want to go get their voter registration card or they don't want to renew it or they, they don't want to make the extra effort to vote. And there's these two different kinds of uh, boycotters and their level of political participation is different, um, you know, with a very broad definition of what political participation means. One of the new things with this, with this particular uh, election that I think a lot of people in media have pointed out is that IHAC, the Iraqi uh, Commission for, for the Elections, has announced a new way of counting voter turnout. And this new way says that voter turnout is, you know, percentage of people who voted or proportion of people who voted to the proportion of people who are registered, uh, which is a way that many people think will amplify the appearance of higher voter turnout. Now, of course, this is bad 
if it's compared to previous voter turnouts because they're not the same they're not the same uh, denominator and they'll be comparing two things that are actually incomparable but this is this is one of the of the of the new things that's been happening um, and in general the the ability to influence people to not boycott the elections and the ability to in, to you know encourage parties and independents to run largely rests on societal actors and i mean it goes without saying that the the interference that we're waiting for that we we want to see whether it will happen or not is Grand Ayatollah Sistani and whether he will say anything about whether people have to participate or not in the elections. And previously, he had gone out and said that people can participate or they don't have to participate, and people took that to mean that they, they could boycott if they wanted. So we're still waiting to see what he has to say. Um, his statement, if it comes out, will be particularly important because the, when you look at the geographical scope of how people interact with elections in Iraq, that most of the protesters are from southern areas and most of the boycotters are also from southern areas where Sistani's influence is strongest. So this will, his influence in, in, in turning over potentially turning over boycott may be strongest in, in the South for that reason. And the other actor that I think uh, merits mentioning but has a different effect than Sistani is UNAMI. Um, you know, you've seen over the past few months that UNAMI has increasingly been involved in supporting IHEC and in promoting the Iraqi elections. They did something I think is unprecedented, which is promise election day monitoring. Um, and they've been trying to make overtures to the Iraqi public that they, will, they are trying to help ensure that this is a free and fair election, which is really what... Um, what protesters want to see happen. I mean, when people were protesting and asking for early elections, what we have right now, they were asking for them to be free and fair, otherwise they wouldn't participate. And this is the reason that there's uh, protest parties boycotting and individuals boycotting. And so UNAMI's role has been to really, to alleviate some of these fears. Um, whether it's been successful or not is yet to be seen, but one of the critical things for UNAMI is that it can't provide the assurances of pre-electoral manipulation, so it can't provide the same uh, assurances that there haven't been practices in the lead-up to the election. It can only really provide assurances for election day. And this can severely backfire on UNAMI if the, if the results of the election are something that the Iraqi public at large sees as being, um, as being um, wrong or as being you know, meddled with. So these two are the key actors that influence turnout. And I think with that, my time is up. So I'll uh, turn to the next speaker. Brilliant. Thank you, Maslin. That gives me an awful lot to think about and an awful lot of questions we'll, we'll get back to. So our next speaker is uh, Sajad. Sajad, please, uh, if you please start. Thanks, Toby. Um, so I'll probably just pick up where Maslin left off. I mean, I expect turnout to be pretty low. Last elections, we had 44.5% turnout. That was the official national average. In many places, the actual number was, was lower than that. Um, we have around 25 million eligible voters in Iraq. I think only 22 million have actually been registered for, to vote. And then 19 and a half have been issued with IDs. And then from there, some of them have not picked up their IDs. And then obviously the bigger question is, um, will they show up even if they are registered and, and ready to go? 
So I expect, you know, just based off those numbers, I think we're probably only going to get about 10 million voters in, in total and probably less than that, actually. So part of that is the apathy that Marcy mentioned. Part of that is just the, the, the fact that some people are boycotting, but it's also the mixed messaging, you know, at various times, um, you know, former Prime Minister Alawi, former Prime Minister Ibadi have come out and said they would boycott. Muqtada Sadr said he would uh, boycott elections. Obviously, they all re retreated from, from that um, statement, but that, that mixed messaging does not help bring confidence to, to voters. In addition, I think people are just so wary of uh, the fact that um, their votes mean little. If you have coalition governments and if deals are made behind closed doors, it doesn't really matter who you vote for because everyone has a seat at the table at the end of the day. Um, some anecdotal evidence I can point to, I was just um, you know, in, in Najaf and Karbala during the Arba'in pilgrimage. I must have spoken to about 100 people and I would say one out of every four said they would vote and probably uh, the vast majority were just not interested in voting. It wasn't a logistical issue. It wasn't that they were registered. They just didn't feel like voting. Those who did say they would vote, they had a very specific candidate in mind. Um, somebody they knew in their area, for example, in Nejef in a particular district. So they had a reason, so to say, to, to vote. The vast majority of people were apathetic and this was across the age groups. You know, Young people and older people felt pretty much the same towards elections. Um, our concern is obviously uh, about uh, fraud, but it's also about the way elections are conducted. So we've had some um, messages on social media about people being offered um, you know, cash for their votes, you know, $100 or whatever it is, to, to vote for a particular candidate. And I think that's a concern that even if on the day there, there is limited uh, fraud, the, the way the elections are conducted, where people are willing to hand over their votes to a particular candidate, where there is intimidation in certain areas, for example, that's not something that you can detect at the ballot box. That isn't somebody making up uh, ballot cards. That's people being pushed to vote in a certain direction. I think that's a, that's a concern. And I don't think that's something that UNAMI or anybody else can do anything about. Um, and I think the integrity of elections is, has always been under question in this country. And I don't think that's gonna change in these elections. I think people will come away and say there was something wrong. And in the case where we do have a low turnout, I think that will call into question the legitimacy of the whole process. Um, it would only take for one or two political actors to come out and say, oh, we've been robbed of our seats and you know the election process was, was done wrong and we want to rerun. And I think they will find some popular support. Uh, even if people don't agree with those parties, on their on their principles, but with regards to elections, I think a lot of people would come out and say, yes, you know, uh, there was fraud, and we're prepared to sort of have elections again or to postpone them. And I think that calls into question um, what the government response would be if there are protests and so on and so forth. In terms of you know what happens after elections, the government formation process, I think we can expect pretty much what happened in previous elections to occur this time around. So, elections on tenth of October, at least a month before we get sort of you know certified results. And then it'll take a bit of time before parliament um, sits for the first session. Of course, these are all constitutional deadlines, but they're quite flexible uh, in Iraq, unfortunately. And then after the first session, we're supposed to sort of have a, um, a meeting where the political blocs agree on you know, candidates for prime minister, and then between them agree to pick up enough votes you know, to reach the threshold, uh, sort of 167 seats. And unfortunately, um, this process in, in previous times um, has been sort of very drawn out. Um, and I don't think that's going to change because everybody has some numbers when they come out of the elections. Somebody has 10 seats, 15, 20, 30. Nobody really picks up 100 plus seats. And so, you know, you have to form a, a coalition government of uh, 15, 16 parties and everybody needs a seat at the table. And so they divide out the ministries. Now, this haggling takes time. And uh, I 
think this time around, we will probably have a new government in, in March, maybe April. I don't expect to have a new government in before then. And in my paper, um, which I see has published on, on the elections, I say that they're not a game changer. The status quo will continue, partly because of the way um, elections are run and the way power is distributed and the way um, parties are able to be represented in government, even if they don't do well um, in elections. And so I think the status quo will persist. I think we will have um, a few months of haggling over government formation. I think in my personal view that the FETA alliance will probably come out on top, followed very closely by the Sudris, and then the, the other parties sort of are very close behind them. And so this will force uh, a lot of compromise. I don't think we'll get a Sudris government or a Sudris prime minister, but I do think they will continue to pick up several ministries. Obviously, we have the influence of, uh, of Iran and the United States in this process. But what comes out of this is a continuation of the system. So I predict that uh, you know, after elections and the new year, after new governance form, again, protests will you know, uh, come out to the streets, partly protesting um, you know, the, the process of elections, but also protesting the fact that governments are a status quo of, of the existing political problems that we have. But again, I'm sure you know, our problems with services will continue. We've got uh, very low water supplies at the moment. It's been a very dry summer and it's expected to be a dry winter as well. We've had several electricity problems in, in multiple provinces. Uh, we've had issues with obviously hospital fires and, and bad provision of healthcare. As our population grows by 1 million plus per year, these problems will be exacerbated because there is no uh, infrastructure building. There is no reform of all these basic services that citizens need. And so people are not interested in the political process, They're not getting the services that they need. They have very little confidence in, in, in government and politicians. And you have also the lack of accountability for what has occurred uh, since the October 2019 protests in terms of, of the killings and the arrests and the torture and beatings. And putting all that package together means that it's very likely people will continue to feel very angry um, and show that in some way in the form of protest. So my view, the status quo persists, these elections are not game changers, and it's very likely that we'll have protests at some point next year. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sajad. Uh, just for uh, Lahib, if you could slow down when you're speaking, that would be greatly uh, beneficial to our supervisors. Just to pick up on a couple of issues that, that, that we can carry on in discussion after Lahib is finished. I think the apathy active distinction amongst people not voting is intriguing. I'd like to tease that out whether people actually, whether all boycotters are actually boycotting because they don't think it's going to work. I think Sajad's point about the integrity or legitimacy of the elections opening up into question and the elections actually may be exacerbating the legitimacy crisis that the system is undoubtedly facing after October 2012. But I'll hand over to Lahib to talk for seven minutes to introduce her thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. Okay, I will try to speak slowly so the interpreters uh, will be able to follow. So please let me know if they start speeding. Um, so maybe I'll follow on to, to what you touched on, uh, Toby, when it comes to the legitimacy crisis, because I think this is precisely where we are headed with this election. We've seen a steady decline um, of the legitimacy for the state and, and for successive governments since 2005. Uh, and that is clearly shown with lower voter turnout for every election. Of course, this is directly connected to the fact that people do not feel that 
uh, formal politics actually represent them. Uh, and the governments have not been able to improve public services. And so hence why we saw the 2019 um, protests and before that uh, in Basra. Now the issue I think with what happened in 2019 and the fact that we saw uh, a small change in the fact that the, the government resigned, um, there was a discussion on a new electoral law was that the, the conversation on that was very much driven by political parties at the end of the day, even though protesters also um, fielded that as one alternative, but among many others in terms of what needed to be changed, uh, including constitutional reforms, for example. All of that was very quickly set aside uh, and all of the focus was on uh, the electoral law, which again, at the end of the day, was decided on by the current parliament that we have, um, and with heavy influence of, of the Sudras movement, which, which also played a great role uh, in the protest squares. And as we've seen this uh, election law, the new system come about, there's also been significant gerrymandering in terms of how you've drawn um, the, the boundaries of, of the electoral districts. So even if in theory, um, this system could actually benefit independent candidates uh, in the sense that you're closer to your constituency uh, because it's a smaller one, you might even know the person running. This might have a positive effect a few elections down the line when people actually learn how you can make use of that. Um, but at the same time, we've had a trend whereby parts of the protest movement, as, as Marcin mentioned, uh, you know, have translated into political parties, but not political parties with a clear agenda or with, let's say with an opposition agenda that are formed around um, a set of demands based on certain reforms. So what is most likely to happen is that we might see a few people um, uh, connected to the protest movement that actually get into parliament, but that will quite immediately be sucked into to the system as we have it. And as we've seen through the protests, it is a system that is very much willing to preserve the status quo, um, you know, however much violence uh, that takes and also preemptive violence in the sense of um, uh, disincentivizing people from, from running in elections through uh, assassinations, intimidations, threats, threats of violence. And so I think there's gonna be, there's already a great disillusionment and disappointment with what uh, elections could produce, but I think that will actually grow after this election because what will happen is that we will again have a parliament that is quite lethargic, not very uh, interested in, in pushing through reforms, uh, of which some should be a continuation to, to what we already started with, with this electoral law. For example, the party law that would provide greater transparency, uh, but also other greater issues, obviously con connected to, to, to corruption, et cetera. So what is most likely is that we will have a new generation of uh, politicians that will actually just become a part of of the same system. Um, and so to what uh, Sajad mentioned, uh, we will obviously see another cycle of protests, even though they might not come immediately. And I think I'll bring up one, one last reason why I think that um, the elections are not, uh, or, or the, the chance for reform is not very likely, is also because the, the international community may very well have put 
a lot of uh, attention and pressure on Iraq to to do better by providing uh, election observation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think the main issue and the question is what happens in between elections? Uh, and the reality is that Iraq has navigated towards calmer waters since, uh, uh, since the war on ISIS. It is fairly stable. Um, and this is also what the international community would like to see continue. And in that, I think it means that there won't be a lot of pressure on, on Iraq to reform the very root causes of why we have this legitimacy crisis, as long as it remains sort of stable the way that, that we see it right now. Um, so I think that a part of the issue is that uh, uh, although Iraqis themselves would like to see less interference on several fronts, I think, from, from international powers, um, the, the lack of attention to Iraq so quickly uh, might put us in a scenario that we saw in, in 2011, even though it, do, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, a reemergence of ISIS. But the lack of attention and the lack of, of, of pressure on Iraq to, to force certain reforms, I think is gonna prove detrimental further down the line. Um, and also just in the, the sense that the international community is actually a supporter of, of the status quo in Iraq and has been so through several elections. Uh, I think uh, Sajan mentioned the, the, the way that both the US and, and Iran, for example, actually need to part, we need to, need to be a part of uh, the acceptance of, of any new government. And we will see this also going forward. Thanks, I'll stop there. That was superb. Thank you very much. And I think that that's us, us, our three speakers have, have, have covered the issue really well. Um, so um, Marcin started to talk about the different types of electoral uh, boycotters, but also mentioned the role of Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani. And I think we need to, to we need to expand on that more because I think Grand Ayatollah Sistani's role in different elections has been profoundly different. Uh, Sajad then went on to, I think, uh, further look at the apathy active distinction, which I'm going to ask them both a question about, but then rather worryingly looked at um, the lack of integrity that the elections may well have, and then on the basis of the system that Iraq has had since 2005, the, 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 the strong sense that elections may not have a great deal of meaning as you move into the negotiated uh, process where a government of national unity is formed by the existing elites, which leads to a, a greater exacerbation of the legitimacy crisis. And I think the things that leapt out at me uh, from Lahib's point of view was, again, looking at the, the legitimacy crisis surrounding the system, but also the lack of, the lack of interest about depth reform in the international community, uh, so uh, and and the 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 issue that this that there will certainly be new a new round of protests. If I'm not uh, doing damage to the subtlety of our our present our pre presenters' predictions, but also that the international community has not stepped forward to do enough to exacerbate this legitimacy crisis. So, I'll if you can put uh, questions in the chat, which you're doing, I thank you very much. I'll ask the first three questions. And to Marcin, you, you, you touched upon the role of Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani and, and his possible role in trying to encourage people to vote. 
given his previous, uh, not 2005, but certainly much later, I think in 2018, and you're the expert, certainly not me, he's, he seemed to say, look, it's, it's your choice whether to vote or not. And, and, and we do know very much that the Grand Artola um, has shown uh, a great deal of discontent in how the system's evolved and the players, the endemic corruption. So I think what chance, if any, is there of actually Sistani intervening to try and increase the vote in a system that he, he seems to think has profound problems? For Sajad, I, 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 I take your uh, your warning about the integrity of the electoral process, or at least its perceived uh, um, uh, dangers of the lack of integrity. I just wonder if you can comment on Unami's role. Um, I don't think they got an, uh, as much money as they wanted to do electoral observation. We talked about observation on the street. I wonder what your sense is how open the electoral system is to fraud, given, as you said, that fraud has been a electoral fraud has been a problem all the way from 2005 but is generally considered to have reached a peak after 2018 and for this is a question always I hate always being asked so I'll flag it up as that but it, you, your comments do leave you open to asking the question so if you had the ear of international decision makers both in the uh, Security Council of the United Nations and in the White House now that President Biden is trying to get over his trauma of the Afghan withdrawal, what would you tell them? What, you know, what does the international system need to do to tackle the legitimacy crisis? So if, if we go in the order, if Marcin, if you want to start, and then I'll start collecting questions from the chat, we have a little under half an hour. Thank you. Sounds good. Um, about Sistani's role, so really to understand Sistani's potential role in elections, uh, you don't all you don't only need to look at his role in previous elections, but you should also look at his general perspective of politics and how he behaves during protests and during other crises. So. If you look at Sistani's uh, behavior, and by Sistani's behavior, I mean what we heard from his representatives in Karbala. If you look at those statements for the previous protest movement and how he navigated that, then you can see that the main motivator for Sistani was if we are going to achieve change, we do it in a way that is not destabilizing, that involves institutions and tools that already exist, that elevates the law, that respects the constitution. And that was the message that they were that they were putting out uh, during the protests. And the reason that we had, you know, a change in prime minister, the reason that we had the call for early elections, that this was being navigated through systems that exist in, in Iraq is because Sistani has, and the Hausa, not just Sistani, and the Marja'iyah historically, has always been the, the line that pushes for reform rather than outright revolution because of the destabilizing nature of revolution in general. So um, his behavior in 2018, if that varies drastically, say, for example, from what he'll say for this, for this election, then the reason isn't that he has changed his view towards how he should interact with elections, but rather that he may see the situation now as being more dire or less dire, depending on how, um, what he'll come out and say than before. So if he thinks the situation is uh, more unstable, that there's fear of you know, state collapse, that there's fear of deep destabilization in the country, and then he'll do uh, the kind of interference that actually promotes pre-existing mechanisms like elections. And if he doesn't, like in 2018, where things seemed like they were going on a relatively normal trajectory, then his 
his involvement wasn't needed as much. So, you know, in summary, Sistani's role can largely be understood as one that's preservationist of stability, uh, both economic and, and political stability, because that lends to security stability in the country. So um, on the question of UNAMI, I think they're in a difficult position. I mean, they are mandated to support Iraq because the Security Council voted to accept um, the Iraqi government's request for support, not just for elections, but from the UN in general. So UNAMI has to provide support to, to Iraqi government and to the elections. And at the same time, they are concerned about the fact that their support, while not able to sort of um, maintain integrity of elections, also will lead to accusations of uh, the UN being complicit in you know, election fraud or giving legitimacy to the process. So I think it is a difficult position to be in. If they don't give support, then you know, things could be worse. If they do, then um, under the cover of UN support, you know, fraud could still occur and that uh, would give legitimacy to fraudulent elections and fraudulent results. So I think it's a difficult position. I, I don't have a sort of a particular view on, on whether they should or shouldn't. But I do think um, the support that Iraq needs is, is far beyond what UNAMI is capable of providing. And it's also a matter of political will. Do the political elite really want to hold proper elections? Do they want to prevent irregularities? Do they want to make sure that you know, we get rid of the quota system that applies to IHEC, the judiciary, um, even at polling stations, um, in terms of uh, other posts that are critical to running the elections. All of these are still based on the quarter system. Parties appoint people um, according to sort of their power into these positions. And so the political elite are, are protectors of this system as a whole, and nothing is truly independent in the country. So if they want to have proper elections, they need to sort of give all of these privileges away, which I, I don't see that happening at this moment in time. In terms of sort of the peak of uh, election fraud occurring in 2018, I mean, I'm, I think it will become more sophisticated. In 2018, we had ballot boxes burned in, in Baghdad in storage. So votes were lost there. We had to have the judiciary come in and, and count votes because we couldn't trust the Electoral Commission to do it properly. Uh, eventually, you know, they were, they were dismissed and replaced by judges uh, in the Electoral Commission. So it was, it was peak then, and I, I can't see why suddenly things have improved since then. I think the, the, the government is worried a little bit about legitimacy, it wants to have a higher vote turnout for that reason, which is why it's forcing some uh, employees in, in government departments to show up and vote. Or um, we're hearing reports of uh, IHEC even requesting uh, payments be made to voters to encourage them to show up and vote. Now, you know, either way, I think even if uh, overtly we don't have fraud the way we did in 2018, I think there's more subtle methods that will lead to sort of fraud or irregularities continue. But all of this comes against the backdrop of, of low turnout. And I think the trend is there. So it doesn't really matter if there is a lot of fraud or if there isn't a lot of fraud. If people are not showing up, if people do not vote, if people do not believe in the system, then I think elections are just going to be, um, you know, have very, very little meaning and very little impact. Excellent, Lahib. Uh, okay, thanks. So, so first, maybe in, in general, when it comes to the international community, uh, maybe I'll bring up one, one example where there has been a little bit more interest, and that's the, the economic working group when it comes to economic reform um, that started with this government and where there has been an ongoing effort by uh, the UK, France, Germany, together with uh, specifically the current uh, finance minister, Ali Alawi, um, to set in motion something something new. Now, this is 
the government came up with a white paper that that might not be the best solution but there are certain uh certain indications that there are at least uh intentions by the government to head in a, in a slightly new direction when it comes to to economic reform but that will need obviously uh long-term planning um and and for the international community to also supervise that um or at least be be in support and why did that come about? It came about because there was an economic crisis not so long ago due to COVID and low oil prices. Now, Iraq is in a new position again where oil prices are going up and, and it, it doesn't look so bad. So I think the urgency on part of the political parties in parliament is again going to decline. And even in the beginning, there was a lot of resistance. So I think there's a question of how to, to overcome that uh, and how to find the, the arguments to, uh, uh, to convince the political class that actually further down the line, you know, this will be beneficial for you um, if, if people will see, will see improvements along these lines and also explain to constituents why this is important. Obviously, the devaluation of the dinar was, was very unpopular. So I think there are uh, two levels to it. You know, uh, how can the international community provide, incentivize uh, future governments and parliaments? And how can uh, parliamentarians and parties actually connect better uh, to constituents through a dialogue on, on what reforms can, can mean? Uh, and then specifically when it comes to the White House, I think that one of the major issues, uh, uh, and I think it's very evident right now, is that uh, up until we had uh, a shift in the White House, we did it, the US didn't really have a clear Iraq policy. It was an Iran policy. And at the moment, there is no Iraq policy whatsoever. Um, and I think th this role for the US is problematic. I, I, I think that for many in Iraq, it is welcome that the, let's say the interference will, will be decreasing. Uh, but but the U.S. has had a, a great part in the, the, the system that we have right now. It has leverage over certain uh, parties and groups within the country, uh, the Kurds not the least, to a certain degree uh, Sunnis, and have some some relations, working relations uh, with Shia parties. This needs to be salvaged uh, in a in a constructive way, not simply left behind or not simply seen uh, uh, through the lens of, of how do we contain Iran in Iraq. Thank, thank you. And I just want to restate something you said, because I completely agree with it. Uh, you said that the US White House doesn't have an Iraq policy at the moment, uh, and it didn't have under Trump, it had an Iran policy. I, I think that's exactly right, um, and very astute. So we now have eight questions delivered in the chat box. And uh, I want to look, I'm going to try, if you've got a pen and pencil, a pen and a paper, our panelists, I, if you can make note of them, I think they're excellent uh, questions. And I'll, I'll ask all the questions to all of you, and then I'll go back to you. We have roughly about 15 minutes, so you'll probably have about five minutes each. So pick the ones you want, and if I feel that there's an important question that hasn't been covered in enough detail, I'll come back to it. The first question, indeed the first question that was asked is about the role of the Iraqi Communist Party. Currently, as I understand it, boycotting uh, a, a key player in, along with the Sudarists in the last elections. What role do you think they have uh, if, they, if they do continue to boycott? Uh, and, and how will that affect their influence in society going forward? 
another excellent question. The new Iraqi electoral system, the single non-transferable vote, will this, as hoped for, result in a more responsive parliament because members of parliament will be directly elected by geographically delineated um, constituencies or will the parliament still remain dominated by the parties and, and not um, fulfill its role in keeping an oversight of government? So that's the second question. How will the new electoral system affect the role of parliament? The third question, uh, certainly key to all our minds, is uh, what will what do you think the possible outcome of the elections will be for the three presidencies? Uh, will uh, the president, the speaker, and the prime minister change uh, after the new government has been formed? Um, and if you wanted to think where to say, if I could draw you out to say where out of those three presidencies is the president, the speaker, or the prime minister more likely to change, or any of them, or all of them? The fourth question is about a series of uh, negotiations between Sairun, the KDP, NASA, HICMA. I, I suppose that question is asking, will there be a new power balance after the elections? Will there be new alliances uh, as we move into the government formation process off the back of the winners and losers in the electoral, electoral process? So what will, what will the outcome of the elections do for the balance of power? And will that balance of power be significantly impacted by any coalition negotiations that may be more permanent moving forward? Someone has asked this, I think it's a great question. I haven't seen a great deal of coverage of this outside Iraq, which is, can you comment on the specific platforms that the parties and coalitions are running on? Uh, is it, do you think it's still a matter of technocratic politics? We need more electricity, we need running water, or has the Tishreen movement forced the issue of reform more centrally on all platforms? Uh, I think you mentioned in your initial comments that, low, that there would be low turnout. And I think, I, I think, I think Marcin mentioned it's probably gonna be lower in the South and that where this active boycott is. Um, and, and people are asking for much more specificity, obviously analytical specificity, uh, talking about the future. Where do you think um, in different constituencies and different areas of the country turnout will be lowest and why? That's question six. Uh, question uh, seven, I think, goes directly to Sajad and said, if there was no electoral fraud, would the election still be a status quo election, i.e. have the party, are the dominant parties so um, dominant that they will get the result they want in spite of the Tishreen movement? And I suppose I would add, has the violence directed at uh, um, democratic activists uh, attached to the Tishreen movement uh, delivered a safe election, in, if the, even if there was no fraud to the dominant powers? And um, the final question of the eight, I hope you've been taking notes, but I can remind you of them if there weren't, if you haven't, is, is on voter turnout. I know Masin made a, a point that I brought up before about active and passive boycott. I'm, I'm still unclear about that. If someone makes a conscious choice not to vote, in a way, you could argue that's a passive choice because they're not coming out to do something, but that's a very informed choice. So I'm, I'll, I'll push you on the distinction 
between active voters actively choosing not to vote and active vote or, and passive voters somehow not being bothered to vote. I think that's that could be a, a problematic distinction. But more to the point, the last question is that this new way of judging electoral turnout. Uh, so, uh, Sajad's figures were fascinating. So maybe. I think that's right, 25 million potential voters, 22 million registered voters, and 19 million, 19.5 million with um, voter turnout, if those figures are right, so Chad, please correct me if they're not. That means you've already lost 5 million potential voters uh, that aren't now going to be uh, considered as non-voting. So that, uh, are the turnout figures being fixed, in short? So I'll turn over to Marcin. We've now got about 12 minutes uh, so if you uh, please uh, answer which questions you think are most important. Thank you. Okay, those are a lot of questions. So I'll do my best to answer the ones, um, some of the key ones, and then leave the rest for my colleagues. Yeah, only the one you're interested in. I'm interested in all of them, but I feel that I have a lot to say about the question regarding the Communist Party. And actually, it's really interesting because as far as I remember, the leader of the Communist Party had written a piece for LSE about why he was choosing to boycott. So they, they are actually deciding to boycott for this for this protest and they're not running. But to be honest, the way I think of the Communist Party is that in 2018, it really served as the party for people who wanted to be anti-establishment and it was the natural choice for them then. And they, in the Sudras took uh, advantage of them and you know had them become part of the movement all overall. And they ultimately didn't get that many seats. They had two seats that what I think was the, you know, the height of their ability to, to get the vote of people who are non-establishment or anti-establishment. And now we have so many more options for anti-establishment, uh, for people who are anti-establishment and there are more anti-establishment parties that are available for people to vote for, stemming from the protest movement. And what this shows, what I think this really shows is that there is change in, in the political system in Naraq. It's just not the kind of drastic change that people want. And by change, I mean, uh, first of all, there we went from having very few choices for for people who who ended up protesting to actually having this new set of parties. Um, and then, of course, they'll have face co-op measures they'll you know they'll be under a lot of stress later on they're not the ideal for everyone but there that does show change in the system the other thing that um, that Sajad hinted towards is that uh, the the government really does care and the political elite really do care about legitimacy I mean there's these been there's uh, been these conversations online for example about the legal threshold for which if, if it exists for which there is um, there's a point where the elections are no longer legitimate because not enough people came out to vote. And so legally there isn't one according to experts, but that isn't the point. The point is that they do worry that if there is a significant portion of the population in this thing, it will look illegitimate. And that's why they're trying to make overtures. But that's also why are they, they were very excited that Sadr stopped boycotting and joined the election later on, because if a huge chunk of that population uh, doesn't vote, and if the Sadrists step out of the elections, uh, they they were concerned about that. They were considered concerned about how that delegitimized the system. So what this shows is that there is change and forms of continuity. It's just not very drastic. Um, with regards to the the new electoral system, the you know there's advantages and disadvantages. I think it's good that we're trying something new. One of the main advantages I see 
is that it really allows for a specific kind of candidate to emerge. Um, and those kinds of candidates that had really not not been successful in the past because they tended to have popularity at a small local level. So say like local professionals who are very well known in their communities. So I'm in Mansoor right now and I've seen posters for people like this who advertise amongst, you know, people in their area who hold events at the hunting club among, you know, the upper middle class Iraqis. But they're well known professionals in their community and having a small circle allows them to have a space where they can, you know, they can conceivably beat out a candidate from a bigger party that would be cobbling votes in the past from different districts in Baghdad. So this is a good thing for this kind of candidate who isn't new to Iraq, but is, gets a new chance right now. Um, of course, it might benefit certain kinds of parties more than others. We've seen it have an effect where it has decreased the number of candidates overall, you know, dropping from like around 7,000 from previous election cycles to nearly 3,000 right now, which is a, a big uh, jump in the number, or big change in the numbers. Uh, but, you know, it's yet to be seen. But I think, you know, trying out new systems is n not a bad thing, uh, especially when there is a, a rationale behind them. And, of course, there is a concern about gerrymandering that Lahib said. And there's also the concern that activists have pointed out that they're more identifiable when they're running in smaller districts and that might bring them trouble. But like I said, pros and cons to systems and we're, we're going to see how this plays out. Um, the final point I'll make is about how platforms have changed. And one of the big thing that has changed with this election is that you see that a lot of parties, whether stemming from protest movement or established parties, have been trying to use the language of state building, of, of, you know, of construction, of recovery. And you know, one of the ones that always sticks in my mind that I see is, um, is Halbusi's Amar uh, Anbar, which is construction-like Anbar, like appealing to this post-conflict construction, which is really what Iraqis have an appetite for. And so we're seeing this move away from, in the past, people were all about technocrats delivering to now wanting people who can build, literally people who can build. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Sajjad to see if he has any of these points to address. Many thanks, Marcin. Sajad. Sure, thanks. So um, I'm going to do very sort of quick responses, so bear with me. Um, SNTV should make MPs more accountable. It won't, though, in practice, because, number one, we don't have any sort of recall elections for MPs. There is no way for candidates um, to be ousted by, uh, their, uh, by, by voters if their performance isn't great. Uh, also because uh, in some areas, for example, in Sadr City, the Sadrists are just fully in control. So it's very difficult to suddenly see uh, them losing out, uh, having their MP, for example, uh, be removed and replaced by non sadrists there if they're not performing very well. And because the parties are still so dominant, so strong, the SNTV is not really going to change their behavior the way they actually do business uh, in Parliament. Um, I think the Speaker Halbusi has a big challenge. I think he will struggle to retain his seat um, because Hamis Khanjar's alliance is now very close to Fatah. If Fatah does very well, they may then prefer some the speaker to come from the uh, from Khanjar's alliance, Azim, and then that means Halbusi will lose his post. I don't think there will be a switch between the presidency and the speaker of parliament. I think the Sunnis will retain the speaker of parliament and the Kurds will hold on to the presidency. I think the uh, president, Barham Saleh, will struggle to retain his seat as well. I think it's unlikely that the KDP uh, in a deal with the PUK will approve Barham Saleh, who actually is not close to either party. And so therefore they could sort of divide that post up between themselves on a candidate of their choice. And I think obviously the prime minister position will change depending on the negotiations between Fetah and the Sadrists. 
a new compromise candidate will emerge there, I think. I don't think the power, balance of power will change because nobody wants to be left out or nobody can be left out. Can you imagine if, you know, sort of the Sudris, you know, stayed out of government? You know, they, they have arms, they have weapons, they have mass support. Nobody wants them to see them outside the political process, which is why when Muqtada Sadr called for, uh, you know, boycott and said, I will, I will not be participating in elections, pretty much every other political party essentially begged him to come back into the process. And likewise with Fatah, nobody's going to force Fatah out of the political system because the concern is they have arms and they have, uh, you know, mobilization and they're a threat to the system if they're not part of it. So better to be in than out, so to speak. Um, where turnout will be lowest, I think, probably in sort of the, the areas where we've had the strongest voices in protests. So Viqar, Basra, probably Karbala, um, Wasat, I think, you know, some of these areas, Diwaniya, there has been a lot of protests there in the last couple of years, some violence as well, obviously, as we've seen. And I think the people there are just sort of apathetic towards um, the election process. I don't think they'll have a lot of turnout there. So probably they will be the lowest in the country, which is pretty much what happened in 2018 as well. Um, if there is no fraud, will the status quo remain? Absolutely. Uh, for status quo will remain, no matter if there is fraud or there isn't fraud, if turnout is high or turnout is low, I think the status quo is just too powerful to change. In terms of um, you know, voter turnout, the numbers were, were accurate, Toby, and IHEC has taken a decision to record turnout as those as a percentage of those who voted who have voter ID cards, the biometric cards with them. So if only 2 million people, 5 million people picked up their voter cards, and those 5 million voted, then you would have 100% turnout. So it's a way of trying to change the way turnout is calculated. And I think that's obviously a, a way to try to give the system legitimacy, but it's not really the accurate way to, to work out voter turnout. I still would be very surprised if we had more than 10 million votes in total. Some bold predictions there, Sajad, especially on the three presidencies. So uh, thank you for that. And thanks for um, directly answering the questions. Lahib, the final word to you for the last three minutes. Thank you. Thank you. So I think uh, my colleagues uh, uh, covered it pretty well, but maybe I will just add on a few things. So I think in, in terms of alliances as well, whether we have uh, some kind of clear preferences right now in terms of what it looks like, and it's kind of similar to, to the last election, I think what we should remember is that at the end of the day, in the last election, we had a, a you know, government formation um, included everyone and there was ultimately a deal between the Fatah bloc and Sa'irun, Sadr and Amri uh, on government formation. So we might end up in a similar, we might have coalitions that go in the strain of uh, KDP, the Sadrists, potentially Taqaddum and, and Halbusi, and then you know Fatah on the other side uh, with, with Azam and, and a few others, maybe some, some of the, the parts of the PUK. Uh, but at the end of the day, they 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 will come to a deal uh, t together, and um, I, in terms of the, um, uh, uh, just one more thing on the SNTV, I I agree I agree with Marcine and, and Sajad, but I, I I'm thinking about one potential thing when it comes to uh, to accountability in the future, so even if let's say in Sadr City, obviously they the Sadrists are in control, but considering that you have. Uh, specific candidates that are very much tied to the local community, at least maybe in the future, what, what constituents will ask for is someone that is better capable or, um, uh, you know, at, at doing politics, at representing in parliament. So even within the Sudris, let's say, there might be a call for uh, better candidates. And, and I think 
this is potentially one of the one of the, the, the positive things if we would if we would try to think of one. Um, and uh, what was the right? So there was a question of this election, whether this election is a juncture and, and failure would lead to, to chaos and a disintegrated Iraq. I don't think so, at least not uh, now, uh, simply because, uh, again, the system has proved very resilient. And I think as long as the economic situation is on the side of the, of the system, uh, we're very unlikely to see any significant change or, or disintegration. At the end of the day, all these parties are in there to, to share the piece of the pie and to maintain their patronage networks. And as long as they can do that, um, it will be fairly stable. But I think the demographics are against the system, which, which Sajjad alluded to in his, in his presentation, but that, that would come further down the line. That's a wonderful way to finish. Thank you, Lahiba. It's been a superb panel. I think we have covered everything that we set out to do. The speakers have been concise. You've, I think you've, you've, you've seen a very insightful analysis born of, of, of years of studying Iraq from an academic and a policy perspective. And I think they've delivered uh, a powerful insight. I, I, I'm, I'm caught by three final points that I'll, I'll leave you with. Firstly, Sajad suggested, uh, none of us know, that the presidency, the prime minister, and the speaker of parliament may all change against the background of a very low electoral turnout and questions of fraud. But the system, a system thoroughly uh, shown to have very um, thin legitimacy after the Tishreen movement will stagger on. The profound corruption and inability to deliver services will still be a key part of ordinary Iraqis' lives. And I think, as Lahib was saying, that issue, a system that's delegitimizing in the face of a demographic reality that this government, in spite of sitting on huge oil reserves, can't deal with, and an extended protest movement that was violently suppressed. I do hope the international community sits up and realizes, and as, as Lahib said, takes, um, uh, takes uh, note of what happened in 2011-12. So uh, against that background, I think we should thank our speakers for, for some very brave, very honest, and I think very insightful comments and predictions. In half, just under half an hour, we've got an, yet another superb panel, the State of Iraq's Economy, one year on from Malawi's white paper, being chaired by the excellent Chloe Corn, uh, Cornish from the Financial Times with Ahmed Tabatsli, uh, Ali al Mawlawi, and uh, Aliyah Mubayad. Uh, so if you pop, go and have a cup of coffee, pop back at half past uh, in 28 minutes for the next uh, panel. And thank you very much to all our speakers and thank you very much to our participants in the audience who asked a series of uh, superb questions. See you at half past 11 London time.